What did the Apostle Paul mean when he wrote, The message of the cross is sheer folly to those on the way to destruction, but to us who are on the way to salvation, it is the power of God. The folly of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. Our study leader Dave Wurtson begins with a reminder about an old Resilient 66 song that indicates that this mocking about the fool on the hill is not something Michael Crichton drummed up. One of the most elegant sights that you can ever see at night as the sun begins to go down over the hills, a beautiful statue is lit up over the city of Rio de Janeiro. You've all seen it. You can't see any films or slides on Brazil without seeing what's called Christ the Redeemer statue on top of Kakavadu. And what a sight it is, this gigantic statue of Christ, kind of like the Statue of Liberty, only this is the Christ statue, and he's stretching his arms towards the city. The amazing thing is, as you look a little bit off to one side of Sugarloaf, you see uh, Copacabana and the Ibaniba Beach. Now, I remember when I was a kid, the girl from Ibaniba or whatever it was, I never figured out what that was till I went to Brazil. That, I don't remember even if that's the right beach, but I didn't even know that it was a beach, but that's what it is. In Rio de Janeiro, there's a series of beautiful beaches, crescent-shaped beaches that stretch out around the city, and you can see those beaches. And the amazing thing about that is we walk down the beach, there would be little fires lit from time to time on Copacabana Beach. And those were the lights of the animist and the lights of the spiritists that were worshiping the forces of darkness. You could also walk up the beach a little bit more and walk a little bit off the beach, kind of like you can in Honolulu. And you can walk right into one of the most swinging nightlifes in all the world. And you can just go from one club to the next. And you want decadence. Uh, Rio de Janeiro offers that decadence. And I couldn't help but think as I looked at the Christ statue, as he stretched at his arms towards the city, and yet the city seemed to be totally unaware of Christ's presence because all that Christ is on a hill is just a piece of stone. In fact, some of you, I'll give away my age here, some of you remember Brazil 66 with Sergio Mendes. And he did a song called The Fool on a Hill. No one seems to notice there's the fool on the hill. The incredible thing about that is that the Christ the Redeemer statue in many ways is a marvelous symbol of the way Christ is worshipped among the majority of Brazilians. The reality is that I believe it's very possible that that's the way that Christ is worshipped by maybe some of you here today. Christ on the hill is a beautiful statue. If you want aesthetic, if you want beauty, if you want marvelous artistic design, nothing could surpass this marvelous statue of Christ stretching in his arms over 2,000 feet up into the air over Rio de Janeiro. The tragedy of that Christ is, though, that he can't see and he can't hear. And everyone just does their thing down on the beach, totally unaware of Christ. Paul's going to talk to us about the fool on a hill. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following, we're going to focus in on a fool on the hill. 
Only this Christ, Christ the Redeemer, is not a stone statue, but he is a living person that every single one of you, whether you be Jew, Protestant, Hindu, Islamic, whatever you might be, whatever you might want to think about life, one day this fool on a hill will decide your eternal destiny. Now when I begin to talk like that, please don't switch into another gear and say, here comes another preacher. Here comes another message. And some of you have heard it so much. You've heard the message of the cross. You're kind of like me. You see, I was raised going to evangelistic meetings. I was raised singing the old rugged cross. I knew George Beverly Shea from the time I was a little tiny kid. I went to high school with Billy Graham's daughter. I mean, I was raised hearing the gospel from the greatest that could ever proclaim it. But you know, I think it's very easy for us not to understand the incredible scandal, the incredible dichotomy there is concerning this fool on a hill. Even when I mention that, it grates on some of you. Because your idea is, no, it's, it's not a fool on a hill. It's not something that's a scandal. The cross is something beautiful to me. It's something that a lot of the girls wear around their neck and you have it in gold. And it costs several hundred dollars if you've got a pure one. You know, the 14 karat kind. The cross is not a scandal to us. 1900 years of Christianity has turned the cross into just a symbol. Just like the Christ the Redeemer statue. A symbol of love, but it really doesn't have any reality to it. It doesn't have any personal commitment to it. Who knows whether Christ is really alive? Now, Paul is going to deal with the Corinthians about this whole area of their loss of appreciation of the message of the cross. You see, last week we learned how they were quarreling, they were fighting, they were all uptight with one another, they were beginning to say, well, I'm of the Paul party, I'm of the Cephas party. They were kind of like a lot of evangelical believers that I know of. Like I talked to you last week, you know, we follow Chuck Swindoll. We listen to John MacArthur. Boy, Dr. Criswell down there at First Baptist, he's the one that can really do it. The American scene is filled with a focus on the preacher. I was even with a group of preachers from a very prominent church, and they were talking about the dramatic presence of preachers. And they were talking about how two preachers that have an unbelievable flair for the dramatic when they met together in a study, they dramatically acted out the part, even then. Oh, it's so good to be here. And these fellows were talking about that. Now, I praise the Lord that both of these men really have the real thing underneath. But this chapter highlights something that I think we really need to be aware of. You see, I think we've covered up the cross with so much elegance, so much drama, so much personal hype that we don't understand what's really going on. God has you here today because he wants you to hear the truth. And one thing that I really try to do is tell you the truth. And to try to do it in a way that I can get you maybe to open your ears a little bit, maybe do it in a little bit of a form that you're not quite used to. And I try to do it in a way that you'll have to stop and think about the Holy Scriptures. And Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 like this. For the message of the cross. Now he's going back to verse 17 where he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, not with elegant human wisdom, but instead with 
the foolishness of the cross, which is what he develops in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verses 18 and 19, Paul says that there are two groups of people in the world. There's a group that are being saved, and there's a group that are perishing. And the whole dividing line is how they feel about the cross. You see, when it's saying that there are those who are perishing, now what does it mean that they're perishing? It means that you're living for yourself. It means that you're trusting in yourself. It means that you're trusting in your church. You're trusting in your business. You're trusting in your travel. You're trusting in having a good time. You're trusting in having all kinds of sensations and on and on and on. Whether you be an intellect or a business person or a politician, what you're living for is now. And you're perishing. Because you're really pretty sold on now. And you think that you can create a meaningful life just for now. The reality of the matter is, just to tell you the truth, this now could disappear just like that. None of us have any guarantees. Now don't run away from that idea. Please don't run away from the perishableness of human existence. You must not run away. Because if you run away, you run into unreality. You run into a never-never land. You run into a pretend land that's really not there. The real world is a world where our physical life can go just like that. We're all perishing. Our physical bodies are running down. They're subject to cancer. Our church well knows that. We're subject to accidents. We're subject to all kinds of things. Everything that we trust in in this planet, our job, it can be gone tomorrow. In Texas, we thought we could make money from now until eternity. Some of you made great plans. Man, Texas and the Dallas area was going to go on from now and forever. Beautiful buildings are built in North Dallas. Now they're empty. Because that's the fragility of human existence. And Paul is saying that there's a group that's perishing. And ultimately, they're going to perish in hell. You say, Dave, do you believe in hell? Yeah, I do. You know what I believe hell's going to be? Hell's going to be the ultimate thing that unbelieving people want. You see, unbelieving people don't want to hear the Word of God. So in hell, you won't have to listen to the Word of God at all. Unbelieving people don't want to praise God. They don't want to give God the glory. You won't have to give any glory to God in hell. You'll never have to lift up His name. You see, unbelieving people want to live for themselves. So in hell, you'll be able to live for yourself with everybody else that's living for themselves. And all that selfishness brings, all the violence, all the twistedness, all the evil that self brings will be isolated in hell. You see, what hell will be, according to the scripture, is that place in the universe where God isolates the arrogant rebellion against him and he removes his presence and lets evil run its course, which produces eternal darkness because God is light. It produces flaming suffering because that's what evil generates. And whatever hell will be, the Bible uses symbols to give us a feel. It's, it's eternal fire. It's eternal darkness. But it's eternal isolation from God. All of those things really can approach the reality of what hell will be. And you say, well, Dave, man, I don't want to go to hell. Well, there's, you don't have to go to hell. You say, well, Dave, why will I go to hell? There's only one reason that people will go to hell. And that is they choose to arrogantly ignore the fool on a hill. It's the only reason. 
You see, red and yellow, black and white, there's one mediator between God and man. Now, some of you say, well, Dave, that can't be. That really doesn't make any sense. And that's what Paul's going to get on. Some of the intellectuals in this group are going to say, listen, you know, we need to be on a quest for the truth. Man really isn't so bad. I think we can use our brains. I think we can think hard about this. And I think that we can arrive at the truth. There's some other groups that are here that say, listen, I believe in religion. In fact, I'm really into the supernatural. I've seen some real miraculous things happen. And after all, if there is a God out there, I want him to prove himself to me. You see, if there is a God out there, I want to be able to pray. And when I pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to take away this fever that I have at the present, I want God to listen. And if God listens, I'll believe in him. You see, if I pray and God makes me well, then I'll know there's a God out there. I mean, after all, if there is a God out there, he ought to do what I ask him to do to prove that he's there. Now, those are the two groups that the Apostle Paul is going to deal with in this passage. A religious group that's continually asking God to prove himself, and an intellectual group that creates their own God out of their mind. And the Apostle Paul is going to come back with an unbelievable idea, and I want every one of you to hear it. The cross is a happening that takes place in your life. It's an event. It's a historic reality. You could have been there in Jerusalem, outside the wall, and seen a Jew, a wise teaching Jew, that hung as a criminal on a cross. That actually happened. And how you evaluate that event, how you respond to it, decides everything. And what does God say? God says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. If you're an intellectual here in this group, kind of like I try to be at times, if you're an intellectual in this group, God's going to say, you're not going to find me that way. I'll destroy that wisdom. God says, I'm going to take the intelligence of the intelligent and I will frustrate it. And then he begins in verse 20. Man's intelligence versus or God's wisdom. That's your choice. I want all you to listen. You can make a choice. You can either trust in your own brain or trust in God. And I want to tell you something. God isn't mean, but he has revealed what he's doing. He's revealed that he won't let any one of us reach him with our head. Nobody can reach him with their head. And Paul begins, where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? In other words, where's the Jewish legal scribe? Where's the philosopher like Socrates of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Paul is revealing to us, and everybody, it's so important to understand this, God is revealing to us the way things work. Reality. Some of you feel like you can read books. I have a strong part of this inside of me. I just finished reading The Clothing of the American Mind. A lot of you that are into literature can tell that from what I've been sharing with you the last few weeks by Alan Bloom. He taught at Cornell University right through the 60s. He's teaching now at the University of Chicago. There's a part of me that just loves to read about Nietzsche and Hegel and Heidegger and Sartre. And a lot of you say, well, who in the world are you talking about? Well, you're not one of those intellectuals then. Good. That'll be all right. But I want you to understand something. Alan Bloom, who's a, a very prominent educator in our country, 
writes a whole book about the closing of the American mind in the very last chapter, he makes a statement that is, what's really important is the dialogue. What's really important is the discussion. What the university needs to do is to have men and women who really want to find the truth, who know how to ask the right questions, who know how to keep dialoguing and really care about the dialogue. And then he says, whether or not there are any answers, that's really not that important. Now, the thing that struck me about this, I just finished reading hundreds of hundreds of pages, brilliant intellect, really controlling Socrates, controlling Aristotle, one of the most brilliant classicists that I've ever read. He just has that feel, though he's writing on a popular level. This guy has spent 40 years reading the great books. And he gets to the end of the book and says, I really don't know what the answers are, but all the questions are out there. Now that should tell you something. And I'm not putting him down because I believe if he really wants to find the truth, if he really is of the truth, and eventually he'll come to the truth, which is found in a person. But I want you to understand something. God has ordained that you'll never be able to start from man and think hard and put two and two together and keep climbing up your ladder, making one hypothesis after another, whether you're a scientist or whether you're a philosopher, whether you're into economics or whether you're into sociology, you're never going to be able to put one upon another and climb up and get to God. I promise you. Now, my little girl this morning is not a PhD yet, but little Janae is much more in touch with reality along with many of our other children in our church, than the most elite intellectual that doesn't believe that Jesus loves them, this we know, because God's revelation told us so. Now, I want every one of you to get it clearly in your mind, because I guarantee you that some of you are on an intellectual trip trying to find the truth, and you can't find the truth that way. You just can't get there from here. You ever heard that? You just can't get there from here, and you cannot get to God through your intellect. Now, that was, now some of you get really angry about this. They say, well, that's mean. God is mean. How many of you have 140 IQ in the audience? Don't raise your hand. But there's not many of you out there. How many of you had trouble understanding calculus? How many of you were scared to even take it? How many of you can hardly wait till you get out of school? The reality of the matter is the number of philosophers and intellectuals in this group is really nil. In fact, when I've been talking the last few minutes, most of you are saying, Heidegger, who cares about Heidegger? Nietzsche? Pfft, you know, who cares? Now, their ideas really influence you, but most of you could care less. You're not intellectuals. Well, man, you ought to say amen to what I'm saying. You see, if God made it that we could reach God with our head, Einstein might have made it. Copernicus might have made it down through the centuries. Maybe Plato would have made it. But the rest of us peons who don't have that unbelievable brain capacity, we would have never made it. And can you imagine, you know what the intellectual does? This is the tragedy. What Paul is exposing here is that the wise man creates their own God. Wise, intelligent people create their own God. And some of you are right here. Some of you are really brilliant, and you've got a great insight as to what God is like. And I come back to you and say, listen. Where were you before you were born? You might think you're like Shirley MacLaine, think you were back in another life. How do you know that that's true for sure? I'll tell you one thing. I sure wouldn't go to the stake 
for the fact that you existed here before. If I'm really honest with myself, I had to take it by faith that I was born. My mom told me it had happened, and I was beating, my heart was beating. I said, well, mom told the truth. In fact, I don't really remember much of anything until I broke my leg when a little girl pushed me off my bike when I was two and a half, my first memory on planet Earth. If most of you are honest, most of you can't go back to when you were two and a half. So you lived in this planet for two and a half years, and you can't remember hardly a blessed thing about the whole two and a half years. What's going to happen? Think about all you forgot. You're going to trust in your intellect? You're going to trust in your mind? And then you come to the big question, how's your mind going to do when you die? I go to the hospital room, brilliant intellect, PhD. They're out cold. Their eyes are glassy. They're getting ready to die. Boy, please listen to me. Make your decision for Christ while your heart is beating strong and your brain is relatively clear. Because, man, when I go into the hospital and people are getting close to death, they go into Never Neverland. I talk to them, but it's not going to be until I get home to eternity whether I know that they can hear me or not. Because they just get prone out there. The most brilliant intellect. There they are. Blah. They spit and everything else. It's terrible. You say, don't talk like that. Yeah, but that's true. Every one of you is so fragile. Don't trust in your mind. And I'm so glad for a gracious God. They said, I'm not going to make it a mind game. Then we have the religious group. Paul talks about them next. Look, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greek look for wisdom. The Jews demand miraculous signs. I think there's probably a lot of Jews that are here today, not ethnically, but spiritually. You know what you want? I know, that you, I know there's a bunch of you here because you ebb and flow with the group. When you get in trouble, when your business is poor, then you pray. You say, Lord, I really need to get out of debt. Man, I need to get out of debtor's court. Help me. Then you wait. You're looking for a sign and wonder. If the mail, if there's a letter in the mail and the money's in the mail, then you're going to be here at church because you've got to worship God. But, man, if God doesn't come through for you, if there's no signs and wonders, watch out. You know what you're constantly asking God to do? You're constantly like the person that says, all right, God. Here I am. Here's my credit card. Where's yours? I've got my driver's license here. It authenticates that I am Dave Wurtzen. Here it is, Texas driver's license. God, where's your driver's license? Give me your credentials. I want to share something with you. God will never play that game with you. We're always doing that with God. Some of you are going to go away to college, and you're going to say, God, show me your credentials. God's not going to play that game with you. God will not just show his credentials. By the way, God has shown his credentials. He created the world. That's pretty good. He created you. That's pretty good, too. God did visit this planet. You do live in a planet where God came. And God did grow up, and he lived a perfect life. God in the flesh lived a perfect life. You want signs and wonders? The Son of God opened the eyes of the blind, raised the dead. What else do you want? Now, some of you say, well, man, if I would have been there, I would have believed in him. Baloney, you would have. We're all just like every other human being. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders kept coming to him. Matthew 8, Mark 8, I mean. They come to him and say, show us a sign. We need a sign. The Pharisees come. We need a sign. The Lord says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Now, that's really contradictory because he gave him one sign after another. What was he saying? He says, I'm not going to play your game. You'll never believe approaching me like that. 
You see, the reason you can't believe approaching me like that is you're folding your arms and saying, look at me, I can evaluate God. I've got this brilliant mind. I've got powers of observation. I can decide whether God is here among us. You cannot. You cannot decide that. And as long as you think you can, you'll never come to God. Because you can't come to God standing up. Nobody can come to God standing up. You've got to get down. And that's what Paul is talking about. The Corinthians were saying, oh, we've got another philosophy. It's called the Jesus philosophy. I heard a kid at seminary one day, one of my fellow classmates says, isn't the Christian religion such a beautiful system? I said to him, you've got to be nuts. It's a terrible system. It's ugly. It's vicious. It doesn't make any sense. He said, what are you talking about? I said, what could make sense about a God who's born as a little baby? What intellectual ever come up with that? That's crazy. And then the baby grows and he hangs on a cross. Stupidity. That doesn't make any beautiful sense. It doesn't make any sense at all from my vantage point. The religionist is always trying to get God to prove his credentials. And God is saying you can't come to Christ through your religion. You can't step back and evaluate the signs. You cannot come to Christ through your mind. Then how do you come to Christ? Well, all of us have to come exactly the same way. We must all say from deep within, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. To him whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. If you have never humbled yourself and placed your trust in the fact that Jesus Christ took the punishment you deserved because he loved you, if you have never placed your confidence for eternal life in the fact of the empty tomb, why don't you talk to God right now? about these things.